0: and
1: welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. Welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. I'm your host, Ayot, and I'm a fashion journalism student at Centre St. Martins. And here with me is Lou Stoppard. Lou Stoppard is a writer, a curator and broadcaster. She regularly writes for the Financial Times, The New Yorker and various editions of Vogue. She is the author of Fashion Together and Pauls. She also teaches and guest lectures at Central Saint Martins and London College of Fashion. So we're actually here today to talk about Lou's new book, which is Chloe Catwalk. And we will be going into a lot of the history as the brand is celebrating its 70th anniversary. So the first question for you, Lou, is the book begins by talking about Chloe's legacy as a female led brand Susie Manquez said that she would love for Gabriella Hearst to gather all the former Chloe creatives as a statement about women in fashion. What is it about the brand that so infamously empowers women?
0: Hi, thank you for having me. Big question to start with. I think it's a really interesting question actually about this idea of sort of empowerment and women in fashion because I think it's a real sort of buzz topic at the moment and you see a lot of fashion brands latching onto that idea and trying to talk about the way that their house or their particular creative director is a statement on empowering women but with Chloe it really is sort of a part of the history of the house actually long before it was sort of fashionable um, to promote the feminist credentials of your fashion house it's always kind of been the story of Chloe so there's a female founder that's one of the sort of the big things with Chloe but also just the number of female creative directors that the house has had and often kind of young women so this was sort of young designers who weren't widely acclaimed within the industry at that moment had their big break at Chloe so more recently I I mean the kind of obvious example would be Phoebe Philo but also Stella McCartney but before that designers like Martine Sitbon so there's a really interesting legacy within Chloe of women designing for women and sort of women designing in a way that challenged some of the norms of fashion at that moment. So the house really begins at a time of transition within the fashion industry and it really is a pioneer in sort of pushing a more casual form of dressing. Still one that was very elegant and very French but sort of moving against this idea of sort of couture which was really, really pioneering. It was the idea of sort of women being busy and being out and about and wanting clothes that reflected their lives in that way and there was a real sort of Um, quite playful sort of left bank identity with all of that, that was really sort of about youth culture. And then later that really stays in a lot of the collections. There's always been this sort of youthful femininity to Chloe, which I think is a reason that sometimes people can kind of underestimate Chloe and maybe not think of it as being a sort of super pioneering house in terms of design, because there is this sort of femininity in this girlishness it's quite easy to be dismissive of those things but actually if you look through the legacy of designers I mean he's obviously a man but Karl Lagerfeld was sort of pioneer at Chloe and was really discovered by Chloe it's always been a real leader in terms of fashion and women's place in fashion their place in the world I'm aware that's a really long answer to your question so I'll stop talking now. I know it was an (laughs) amazing amazing answer. (laughs) That was like a little potted history of Chloe.
1: (laughs) So this book goes back all the way to Gabby Aguillon's collections in the 1950s. Now, what are the major challenges writing a book that spans collections almost 70 years ago?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. So it's quite tricky at the the earliest years of Chloe, simplistically sort of in terms of even just things like finding images, trying to get information. I mean, the Chloe team are brilliant. Their archive is really extensive, which is really not always the case at a lot of fashion houses. They have a lot of material and a lot of ephemera, so things that surrounded the shows, so notes that were given to press and that kind of thing. But just understandably, some of that stuff is not available for the earliest shows. It is a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, sometimes sort of trying to, pushed together like the early stuff. So there's some of the earliest collections images don't exist from. Uh, but quite quickly, you can build a kind of narrative of of um, of Gabby's work for, for Chloe. And there was a big sort of thing that she did that's quite easy to sort of track the history of, which was doing her shows in quite pioneering, quite playful locations. So particularly in these left-bank cafes, so like Brasserie Lip, places like that. She would often host her presentations there, sort of sometimes alongside a sort of breakfast type event. And then the models would walk in and amongst the press and the guests. And it was really... To me it was really her way of showing that these were clothes to be lived in to to be worn in real life and so sort of pushing against the kind of stuffiness of fashion particularly kind of french couture fashion I was quite lucky, actually, in terms of the early years that there was just a great narrative that you could build quite quickly. It was a real pleasure working with the Chloe Archive just because there's so much there. And they were very good at tracking press reportage of their shows, which was also really fascinating because you could really see the way that the brand had been discussed in newspaper coverage, in magazines and editorials in photography. So that was really helpful, particularly when you get into the 60s and 70s and, and moving sort of out of the 1950s. There was a real wealth of information there what's interesting about the catwalk series is they are actually really quite extensive amounts of research go into them and um, i mean it's a collection by collection history of a, a house so the more press coverage and criticism that you can find really helps you build a picture like chloe have really been good at keeping reviews and that kind of thing and you sort of came across quite fun details as well like one of the things that i really loved is with the early shows. Each show had a sort of an alphabetical letter assigned to it. So you would have A and then the next season it would be B and each of the garments would be given a name that began with that letter. And they could often be sort of like quite playful and quite silly. So it was quite fun seeing things like that as well. And you're sort of trying to match name to garment. So that was quite fun. But Gabby's someone, again, it's an interesting thing with Chloe because I don't know if Gabby is someone who people are particularly aware of. I think those obviously like very engaged with fashion or fashion history would know about her. But when you talk about like sort of the early years of ready to wear, people think of like Saint Laurent they think of stuff like that. I don't think that she's someone who's maybe had her due recognition as a real fashion pioneer. So it was really nice to be able to sort of spend some time researching her. Again, sorry, really long. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, I I, I love these answers.
1: (laughs) Um, So you talked about the research process. So what I really want to know is... What was the most interesting thing you found out going through the archives?
0: I think what I was really fascinated by was Carl Lagerfeld's tenure at the house um, and how much of, because working on this book, it was sort of around the time that he passed away, that there was a lot of like reflection of, on his career and his life. And I think what I, I knew obviously that he'd had his break at Chloe and he had two stints at the house. He was there for a while and then he left and then he goes back again. But I think what was so fascinating was how you really see his development of his, not just his aesthetic, but sort of his whole persona as a designer and as a sort of entity, which he obviously did become, particularly when he goes to Chanel, you see that beginning at Chloe. So particularly this interest in sort of... um, the passage of time and sort of references to different eras of time in quite playful, strange ways, which he's very good at. That intelligent nostalgia that he had, but also the wit. Sometimes taking sort of like, commonplace or sort of like slightly tongue-in-cheek references, so, you know, like his infamous like supermarket show that he did at Chanel. At Chloe, he does shows, like he does one... Um, where a lot of the motifs on the garments sort of refer to plumbing. So there's like shower heads and taps and water dripping down. And you really sort of see how he's exploring themes that he's going to later look at and really establishing his identity as a designer. So researching that was really, really interesting, Um, just because it wasn't something that I think I realised had started so early at his Chloe time. So, yeah, it was fantastic.
1: Wow, I'm really jealous that you got to go through those archives, actually. I mean, it was a
0: lot of work. <laughs> there were points where I was like, I can't look at another Chloe dress. But um, no, it was wonderful. It was really fun.
1: So, Aguillon described how in 1952, there was only couture or basic ready-to-wear. So, there are couturiers like Dior and Balenciaga, but Aguillon felt that these clothes, in their tailoring and formality, didn't suit reality. So, she paved a new way with her early looks, which were playful and casual, and she's known as sort of a pioneer of designer luxury ready to wear. Um, So does this make for some special early shows? And what are your thoughts on her being sort of an early pioneer and ready to wear? You mentioned You sat around earlier and that's where people go to in terms of ready-to-wear. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: I think everything you said is completely correct. I think she was a real pioneer. And I think think she's really forward-thinking in the way that she sort of set up this ready-to-wear business. Because she established it as still being a sort of... um, it wasn't the case of these were just easy clothes for women to buy. She really liked the idea of it still being a, like a luxurious brand and something that was covetable. So she was very strict on keeping the sort of the Chloe labels on things, which sounds really obvious now. But at the time, it was kind of the norm that say a um, a boutique would buy your garments, they would put their own labels on them. So if they were buying sort of ready to wear pieces, whereas she really kept this. idea, She knew that she needed to have that name, like this idea of Chloe being a brand. So she sort of managed to fuse the sort of cult of design that existed around the couture houses, this idea of something that was covetable and luxurious. But with, as you say, a more casual sensibility in terms of the clothing, and again, yeah, as we as we talked about, like with the shows being very much about sort of like, I mean, it's such a buzzword in fashion. I hate it as a term, but like real women, like I'm doing air quotes because obviously this podcast, <laughs> so people can't see what I'm saying. But like this idea of um, holding them at these cafes where the um, models would like m- move through the crowd, like it was, you know, it sounds obvious now because we see stuff like that happening in shows a lot, but. This idea, I think, of real, um, real clothes to be worn for sort of busy women. I know that busy women, I think, is the way that I, an idea that I kept referring to, is the idea of people that had things to do, places to go, and and that was sort of, I think, partly about her own experience of herself. You know, she, she says there's a quote from her in the book where she talks about um, not wanting to live on her husband's money. Like she was born in, into quite a wealthy family in Egypt, and she moves to France, and she's she sort of talks about it with a relative degree of sort of frivolity, almost like she was just sort of a bit bored and decided to start a fashion house. But you could tell it wasn't that. Like she really had this sort of um, drive to do something and make something of herself. And she jokes about how a lot of her sort of intellectual friends that she was hanging out with in these left bank cafes were quite dismissive and were like, oh, she'll do this for two weeks. But she took it really seriously and she really sort of wanted to be a busy working woman and wanted clothes that reflected that. And you really see that in the early aesthetics. And actually, a lot of the stuff that stays through Chloe throughout the years that we recognise today, and that subsequent creative directors, including Gabriella Hurst, have, have sort of nodded to, they're sort of aesthetically established at that early point. So, um, particularly some of the details so using that sort of the broderie anglaise or using the scallop detail that we see on a lot of Chloe hems like a lot of that starts in early Chloe collections so there's a real sort of aesthetic beginning I-, I guess a temperament as well we've seen it later that Chloe has done like the title of the book that they did was Chloe Attitudes that's a sort of the idea of like the Chloe femininity like actually that sort of idea of an ethos really starts at that period with Gabby in the beginning
1: So how did Gabby actually set up her studios back in the 1950s? And the book describes that the studios were kind of like a collaborative hive Mm. and a place where a lot of people would work together. So how did this lead to her spotting Karl Lagerfeld? And what was the energy like in the studios?
0: Yeah, it's a really good point. And it's actually, again, very pioneering because now like collaboration and like the idea of sort of collectives of designers is very fashionable in fashion at the moment. But Gabby really works like that. So she sort of establishes herself as more of like a creative director figure. And then what she had within the studio was different groups of designers working together, uh, often quite young, talented designers and sometimes females, so like Maxime de people like that. Um, and Karl Lagerfeld kind of joins in To a team. That's how he begins at Chloe. And it is quite hard, going back to your earlier question about research, it was quite hard at certain points because the sketches often aren't signed. So it's quite hard to tell who designed what. So you know, like, roughly when Karl Lagerfeld joins, but it's quite hard to work out exactly who's designing what because it all goes out under the sort of Chloe umbrella. Um, But she really talks about having, like, loving this youthful energy in the studio and loving having these different voices kind of all bringing their different identities and different sort of perspectives to chloe and like she refers to them as like her little kittens which i (laughs) I quite liked um so that sort of collective idea it comes back at different points in the chloe history but that's really sort of the beginning the studio is this sort of eclectic talent factory and again like it is quite prophetic of how chloe exists as a brand much later which is a sort of launch pad for young talent you know you see that again with people like um Stella or, or Phoebe Philo um, and then what happens with Carl is he works within this team but sort of is such a strong talent that at a point he transitioned slowly over a number of years to being like the lead designer and the kind of the key solo voice at Chloe so that's that's sort of what happens with him.
1: So Carl Lagerfeld joined in 1964 and say for 20 years before returning briefly in 1992 like you said earlier he had two sort of stints. So what was it about his work and vision that crystallised the identity of the brand? And how did the changing role of the fashion industry, celebrity and technology at the time influence that vision?
0: What I like about what you just asked is you focused on him as a designer, but also on like the changing nature of the fashion industry. And I think that is a good point. In that era that he's at the house, there is a big shift. You start to see the idea of the fashion show as... Less of a trade show and more of a sort of big production, and, and this idea of even like the supermodels, you start to see the sort of early roots of that. And shows being these PR exercises, you know, things that are are not about buyers simply going and placing orders. It's more about a sense of projecting an image and an advertising sort of aesthetic and and thrust for that house. And I think that's definitely something that he really engages with. And also, yeah, as you say, with technology, you know, he's he's quite engaged with shifts within that there's a a great Chloe show that he does where the models kind of step out of like a set that looks like a massive TV so he's quite sort of camp as well at dealing with some of those references I think what's interesting with Carl's period of the house as we talked about is he's there for a long time before you start to think of it as Carl Lagerfeld for Chloe um, so I think he picks up on Gabby's identity and, and principles for the house. This idea of the femininity and the sort of strength of the femininity is very important to him. I think what he brings is certain aesthetic elements that have remained quite strong, like this sort of silk dress, with often with these quite elaborate prints. That's something that he really establishes. And I think the humour is something that he brings that is quite new. There's always been a youthfulness in Chloe, but I think he brings a sort of slight tongue-in-cheek rebellion but it's also worth noting that he flits around a lot that's one thing I really noticed when I was working on the piece about his each collection is like they're not always like universally adored like some of his collections are really um, a great hit but sometimes he'll sort of go from doing something that's very sort of feminine and um, nymph like and lots of sort of sheer stuff and lots of very flowing stuff to doing something that's like almost kind of sometimes a bit dowdy and just completely different. Also you really see his interest in the sort of technical aspect of clothing Clothing as well so there's certain shows where it feels almost like he's pursuing a sort of technical proposition around how fabric can sit and be cut which again is very very fascinating but he's there for such a long time that you get a sense that he's really sort of playing around with his abilities as a designer and I think there is something about Chloe where it, it is sort of an open book he starts to sort of play with associating the house with different kind of social Movement. He's quite inter- interested in the kind of the student movement and the sort of student protest movement. And you see him hitching the Chloe identity to different moods of the time. So whether it's like technological advancement or whether it's kind of youthful rebellion or whether it's almost like 60s and 70s sort of hippie freedoms. Like he really sort of plays with those different identities. So it's a very eclectic period in the house. As much as Karl Loughlin has a strong identity as a, as a designer, it's not sort of... A one look thing. And sometimes I would happen upon a collection that was almost like deliciously strange. You would be like, what is this? This does not fit with what I would expect from him. So it's quite fun. It is the moment that Chloe is really like becomes like a megawatt house, like something that is always a hot seat that everyone wants to be at, that the press want to talk about. Like he really makes Chloe that. And that's sort of quite unfailing throughout his time there. And when he leaves, you see that sort of drop off. And there's a bit of a sort of worry moment for the house where it's like, how do we get back this success of the Carl Lagerfeld-Chloe moment, just where it was the house that everyone talked about and everyone wanted to wear. So yeah, he's a real, as you say, massive part of the Chloe story.
1: And of course, like you said, uh, Chloe is a brand that has hired a lot of young talent and it's all about you know empowering young creators in a way um so Stella McCartney's takeover in 1997 came at a pertinent time Tony Blair won the general election Tracy Emin and Damien Hirst were disrupting the art scene and Britpop was booming how was this new Britain as well as the takeover of Chloe's first British director reflected in the collection?
0: good question because as you say having a british director come in is quite a shift it's it kind of continues to this day people associate chloe with a certain french femininity and a sort of parisian sensibility as well as it was this idea that chloe is very very french and actually the shift when you have stella come in is that it establishes this slight link with chloe in a sort of youthful london like rebellious energy which stays when you get phoebe as well and that's definitely something that is a shift in the brand's History. We should say that before Stella comes, there are different sort of periods in the house. So you you get another young female designer who I mentioned already, Martine Sitbon, comes in before her. You then have Carl's sort of second stint at the house. So there's a bit of sort of coming and going. But Stella's appointment was really quite controversial because she was really young. She was like 20, in her mid-20s, I think 25, when she joins. She's quite fresh out of university. She's obviously got the sort of celebrity parents and that was a real thing in the press when she joins. Like there was a real, I guess slightly like snooty aspect where people were like oh is she even a designer like blah 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 and you get this real buzz and she's sort of I mean it's quite interesting looking at the tone of that press because you get and you see it with Phoebe as well this undercurrent of sexism this idea that like young women are not going to be sort of serious designer it's it's very different to the coverage that you would I think get now but yeah she really brings this youthful energy and there'd always been a youthful French energy but it was always quite chic and as much as Carl had brought humour I think Stella kind of really brings this slightly irreverence, this cheekiness it's that moment I think where female designers are starting to think about like reclaiming female sexuality and sort of like body positivity, a lot of the themes that we talk about now in fashion and she really plays with that, you know she's known for doing these very kind of tight tight jeans, quite like skimpy little tops often quite playful motifs so you see it with Phoebe as well, there's a kind of banana motif that repeats itself or lettering and numbers, things that really, like. I mean I remember like buying high street knockoffs of those when I was like a teen, like really wanting to be cool. Um, so Stella's tenure is really, really important because it shifts the house into this completely new place and, and yeah, it creates this link between not just Chloe and the young French woman, but Chloe and the young woman, kind of internationally, because it starts with the Brits, but obviously it continues to this day where you have someone like Gabriella um coming into the house. So I think that's what's a really interesting part of that story and just the irreverence like the sense of chloe being really cool i think that comes with stella and it's quite interesting now given that we're living in this like, period of like ytk 90s revival within fashion and like every time i walk down the street i see like 20 something like these like fabulous gorgeous gen z boys and girls wearing stuff that i remember like buying the first time around but actually you kind of see the chloe stella and the chloe phoebe look being kind of worn again now and, and that is really fascinating to see and um, so it's very on point at the moment I would say.
1: So I am aware that you do like Stella McCartney's time at Chloe. Mm. Do you have a favourite collection?
0: Actually, to be honest, I love a lot of Stella's collections, but I think my favourite ever Chloe collection is... Well, it's hard to pick one collection. I would say my favourite fashion period for Chloe is Phoebe. And obviously they're really linked because Phoebe is Stella's assistant when she's at Chloe. I don't want to say they're one and the same because they're not. Like Phoebe definitely has a shift when she takes over and when Stella leaves. Um, But there is a sense of continuation. But I think what's so special about the Chloe-Phoebe moment is... Phoebe Filo is someone who has been so instrumental in fashion and completely sort of has set... just an aesthetic sensibility that is sort of impossible to even define now because it's been so influential and it's completely affected how so many other designers design, so many... It's it's really shaped our idea of what a contemporary woman wants to wear. And I think you really can trace a lot of that back to her time at Chloe. And I think that's just amazing to watch. Seeing the sort of earliest ideas of any designer who becomes like a real kind of cult, a real great, is really fascinating and I think it's interesting because even though she's so young when she takes over she brings a slightly more polished slightly more grown-up thing than what Stella's doing and she kind of I wouldn't call her tenure at Chloe like it's not minimalism by any means in the way that people referred to sort of her time at Celine as minimalism but you definitely see a sense of holish and a real aesthetic purity that she brings to Chloe and I I think for me that tenure is just really really fascinating it's just a moment isn't it to be able to see those early collections and she you know also is in her her 20s when she's there so it's like fascinating to see someone being so young and I like that she brings back ideas that Stella worked with because you can see it was probably Phoebe in the studio who'd pushed that idea when she takes over herself so like the bananas, a really good example of that and and things like she she kind of plays with a lot of the Chloe archive in quite an interesting way so you start to see things like the horses coming through in Phoebe's time and then that again gets and, and Stella's time and you that gets referenced again later when you get Natasha at the house so it's kind of nice to see these new codes to come in but yeah I, I love that whole period the Stella phoebe yeah. period is great
1: so vanessa friedman said the chloe girl was a mythic fashion creature who has been through more designer reinventions than madonna and of course this is a reference to the fact that chloe has had so many creative directors and designers with different styles we've talked about many different eras we talked about carl lagerfeld's era and his nostalgia the call of phoebe philo um, Gabriella's her commitment to sustainability and her continued commitment to it. Um, but none have really strayed away from Gabby Agion's original vision. Mm. And actually, even like you said earlier, it's been a brand that is all about feminine power and a focus on the woman. And even Carl Agerfeld, who is a man, he still stuck true to that vision. So what do you think about Gabby Agion's personal vision and how has this influenced or the designers and creators at the brand to ensure that her vision stays true?
0: As Vanessa's pointing out in that comment, there have been a lot of shifts in Chloe. You know, we've talked about a few of the creative directors, but there are a lot more, you know, Hannah McGibbon, Chloe Keller. Um, there's, there's others who who come along, as well as, you know, your Stella's, your Phoebe's, your Carl and Martin Sitbon. periods where it's like the studio doing it. So it would be quite easy for that to be like a really quite like haphazard history. Um, and I think maybe that's what Vanessa's slightly inferring, but I don't know if I agree with that. I do think, as you say, there is a line that Gabby sort of establishes and it's a sensibility. It's a certain attitude. There is a aesthetic elements as well. Like, as we talked about, the scallop, the the blouse, the flue, like these kind of things that stay the whole way through. But it's the sensibility, it's this idea of femininity and then sort of unembarrassed, unabashed femininity, which is quite ahead of its time. Like this idea of being youthful and female and a sort of relative amount of girlishness, but without compromising on the idea that you are busy and intelligent and rounded human I I think that's something that has come through a lot of the different designers times there and I think there's a lot again it's like a fashion word at the moment when people talk about like reclaiming certain elements of things I think the conversations that we've had in fashion over the last sort of like 20 years about female designers talking about wanting to reclaim elements of, of fashion and femininity for themselves and be able to sort of design for women in a way where women can dress however they want and with strength and with dignity, but also with joy and freedom. I I think that's sort of something that's always been there. And maybe the designers didn't talk about it in the same way that we talk about it now because it is something that is more tied to the way that fashion engages in sort of broader issues around sort of society and identity and gender. But I think that desire has always been there within the Chloe house to allow women to engage with fashion in a way that was quite free um and I think that's been really fascinating to watch. I mean, there have been aesthetic changes. You know, you Hannah McGibbon's period is different to Clara White period. Like Phoebe's is subtly different to Stellas, Stella's is different to Carl's. Like there are there have been shifts, but I think that thread has always been there. And I think also just the thread of the young female voice or the young voice as well, because as you mentioned, you know, Carl obviously is a huge part of the history and and he's a man, but the, the young talent and giving people sort of their first break. I think that's such a big part of the Chloe story. And that's really fascinating because there's not that many houses that you can look at and say, that they were sort of such a a consistent talent factory, like pumping out these amazing designers who've gone on to be so influential across fashion. And I I think that's a really fascinating part of the Chloe history.
1: Earlier, I did ask you about like your favourite moment. Yes. (laughs) Um, But I also want to know, like, are there moments in Chloe's history that you thought went really against the grain of what was happening at the time?
0: I think there's moments where the house has maybe not been sort of fashionable. There's definitely moments where you can see, and I talk about it in the book, where the house is uh, struggling to find identities. I do think the moment after Carl leaves and the slight sort of confusion of that moment he comes back is like a difficult point in the house in terms of its history, in terms of its positioning. And I think you see... I mean it's sort of a testament to the success at the house but every time that there's rumours you start to see like rumours that a designer will be leaving and you see it when you're going through the sort of press archives and then you do start to see struggle for what's going to happen next should it be continuation should it be change so you see a lot of these rumours of oh, Carl's going to go Stella's going to go what's going to happen um, I don't think the house has ever really lost its way I, th- I think there's been moments where like every big shift in fashion you know the push towards leather goods you see these kind of shifts that happen but that's something that often tied to the kind of the landscape of fashion, um, a shift away from sort of clothing into accessory you know these kind of things are going on across the landscape And, and you can kind of actually track a lot of the history of fashion through looking at Chloe, particularly in terms of like the history of the fashion show, the history of The model, the history of the magazine, even, you really see that. So there was never moments where I was like, oh God, these five years are boring, I can't wait to get through. (laughs) There's never any moments like that. Um, I think there's moments where you have the studio directing that can be a little... I mean, you see it in fashion today, but uh, where there's sort of a designer leaves and there's a slight moment of um, cautiousness or hesitation or concern. But I think there's so many great moments. You know, Carl, 1970s Chloe amazing and so many designers go on and reference it like Stella included Stella and Phoebe sort of 90s mid-naughties like that that 2005 collection that um Phoebe does with the sort of these really elegant beautiful dresses yeah like, there are so many high moments in the history so no there's there's no moments where you're like oh god what is going on here the house is totally broken from <laughs> from what's good like there's never anything like that
1: Sustainability is one of the things that is at the forefront of Chloe's brand values. Mm. Of course, we've had Stella McCartney and we've talked about her and she is known as a pioneer of sustainability right now. Mm. And of course, more recently, the current creative director, Gabriella Hearst, has quite a big commitment to sustainability. Mm. So do you think the fashion industry has a carbon neutral future? And if so, how is Chloe tackling this issue?
0: it's really a good point with Gabriella because I think what's so interesting with what Gabriella and her you know she is like a sustainability expert it's what her whole sort of her own label has always been about it's not just about materiality with her it's also about sort of working structures and how fashion relates to the community it's how fashion relates to issues around sort of like labour and female representations you know she's really uh, she's not remotely interested in sort of what happens with a lot of fashion and sustainability where you see sort of these capsule collections and that kind of thing like hers is very much from beginning to end all aspects of the fashion business have to be ethical and sustainable but I think what's interesting about your question is you sort of talk about the future of fashion and I think that's how Gabby's sustainability relates to the history of Chloe because Chloe has always been about what's next and what's new and the future of fashion it's always been very much about looking forward and it's always been very in tune to sort of societal shifts so when Gabby sets up the house it's about the the big societal shift of that moment is women's position within society and she's interested in sort of the contemporary socio-political issues that are shaping culture and shaping the way that women are treated and want to dress and want to appear within society and i guess what, what gabriella would probably sort of link to that history is that actually the biggest issue facing us now is issues around climate change issues around our planet issues around um Yeah, sustainability. So if anything, really that link between Chloe and the issues of the moment, the issues facing young people, the issues that need to be confronted, the sort of being embracing of change and the new... I really see a thread there um, that Chloe has always been at the forefront of contemporary conversations and a contemporary mindset. And a contemporary mindset at the moment is a sustainable mindset, you know. it's So I, I feel what Gabriella's is doing is really, really interesting. And I think she's managed, I think, to keep a lot of the sense of Chloe's femininity, but really sort of just bring her own personal identity to it. And I think also make the house... Um, you know, it has been a global house for a long time. And I think she's really brought, you know, she's based in New York, she spends time in Paris, um, she's South American. Like, I think she's someone who really has been able to just make a very contemporary vision of the Chloe woman. And that she's not sort of, you know, there's always been a Parisian aspect to Chloe, but she's not this sort of young nymph like running around Paris she's actually this kind of really and has always been this very intelligent I guess quite provocative figure within the sort of landscape of fashion history so yeah Gabriella's tenure is really interesting to watch and it's it's quite new obviously when I was working on the book it was only a handful of collections of hers as I was sort of finishing the book I'd sort of have time to look at the latest collection so it's kind of nice to end the book with this sense of a real moment into the future and it being quite kind of an open-ended project i'm not sure what will happen next with the, with the house and Gabriella's is really open about that as well she talks about herself as being a gatekeeper how she's here for a moment with this house and it, it will exist beyond her and it has existed sort of before her and there's been all these different voices and i think that sense of again going back to gabby's vision for the house that sense of a collaborative spirit a sense of different voices coming in and and updating and and offering dialogue i think that's really in keeping with the history of the house
1: On a personal level, why is the Chloe brand special to you? What makes it special to you?
0: I think it's the hidden history within the brand that I find really interesting because as I said at the start, I think Chloe... When you talk about like the real pioneers within fashion, I would be like Rei Kawakubo, Mucha Prada. You often talk about with these real design visionaries and often houses with quite a specific, quite clear history and often quite maybe sometimes like a shorter history. Chloe's obviously been around for a while. It's got a really long, quite storied history with all these different designers. And what I love about the house is that the hidden moments within that history, the different designers who've come in and sort of grown their way that Chloe has been always sort of at the forefront of, yeah, I think women's position within society and within fashion, that to me just makes it a really, really special house. And I think it's kind of, as women often are, it's kind of underestimated as a house, it's maybe a house that isn't seen as being, you know, when you talk about pioneers of fashion, do people say Chloe? Like, I don't know. But I, I but I think actually, when you look through the history of the house, there is so much innovation there. And there's so much questioning and sort of needling of, of the status quo and provocatism in, in sort of different ways. And I, I think that's what's so fascinating. It's not a house to be underestimated. And I think you really see that when you go through all the different collections. There's just so much history there, like so much fascinating history. And really like women's history, which is nice, because as with most things in life, like a lot of the history of fashion, it can end up being quite male dominated. And I think what's really interesting with the Chloe history is you see how women want to dress and the stuff that they're buying, but also you see, you know, women in design. There's a real history of women in design and women in business when you look through the history of Chloe. So yeah, again, long answer, but there's a lot that I personally (laughs) like a lot about Chloe. So yes.
1: Oh, I love the long answers. Thank you very much, Lou, for your amazing answers. I really enjoyed this and I was just downloading information as you were speaking. Um, Thank you to the listeners for listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. The book will be available from the 8th of November. And I hope you enjoyed this episode.
0: Thanks. You've been listening to the Thames
1: and Hudson podcast.